Mandy Yakich from Creative Matters, and you're listening to Creative Matters On Air, where I have conversations with new and established artists from around New Zealand. I love to listen to artists' stories and learn about their creative process, and maybe you do too, which is why I've made this podcast, to inspire, inform and educate. I hope you can take away something positive and encouraging from each of these amazing stories to help you on your own creative journey. Hi everyone and welcome to Creative Matters episode 18. Thank you so much for listening. Today I'm talking to Fiona Clifton. Fiona is a mother of three and a multidisciplinary artist. Her work has explored Indigenous stories and histories, her own identity, well-being and environmental issues through the use of costume, body adornment, dance, poetry, ceremonial activations and more recently moving image. Fee has been a long-standing member of Pacific Sisters, an art collective of New Zealand artists, performers, fashion designers, jewellers, filmmakers and musicians established in 1992 giving voice and visibility to Māori and Pacific peoples in Aotearoa, New Zealand. You can see her work and related links on her blog, which is on our website, creativematters.co.nz. Welcome to Creative Matters, Fiona. So nice to see you. How are you? Talofalava. I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. All right, so uh, let's just get right into it. Um, I'd love to know all about your childhood, where you were born. Well, um, I was born in Auckland and I've stayed here all my life. Um, I was a bit of a bookworm as a child and uh, I think I was very content in my own world. I was that kind of a child. Um, I've even... I remember a few reports, school reports, actually coming back with me saying that they, that I was a dreamy child. And um, I have a few memories of, you know, um, the class one in primary school when the class was packing up. Um, we were draw, drawing at the time and the teacher had asked the class to pack up and I had no idea, I didn't even hear her say it and um, I looked up and she'd left me drawing and you know that sort of left, it always left an impression on me like she was happy to let me draw because mm. I was obviously in my own space. Your happy place. Yeah. Mm. Um, and yeah, I mean I had quite a, I guess a musical, there was a musical background in my family because my father was singing in the church choir and he was in musicals and stage productions as an amateur and um, his father had been a really great bass singer and I had an uncle that was an incredible had an incredible voice a really sensitive touch on the piano and um, my mum loved singing and she was a beautiful singer um, and her own mother was uh, an amazing craftswoman. Um, my mum is Samoan, and my grandmother that I never met, um, at, you know, she passed away when I was 10 months old, but my grandmother was in charge of the uh, women's committee. There's a women's committee in each village in Samoa, and those committees make mats and 
you know, do the weaving and mm-hmm. make the tupper and organise everything that needs to happen in and around um, Fa'alawilawe, which is basically community events like funerals and weddings and all those types of things. And she was also the taupo, the the village maiden who opens all the ceremonies and things like that in the in the village. So she would have been a great dancer. And um, my mum always used to say it was a shame that, you know, I hadn't had more to do with my grandmother because she felt there was more of a connection where I was going and what I was interested in, um, Mm. in particularly in trying to make crafts and things like that, Mm. um, that we would have got on well. (laughs) Such a shame you didn't get to meet her. Yeah. Yeah, but her spirit lived on through you, I would say. I hope so, yeah. 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 And so you did some dance yourself as a child? Yeah, um, I know I I had a feeling that I wanted to do dance and from an early age and I asked my I actually asked my parents if I could take dance classes and they enrolled me in ballet <laughs> and um, I found it very constricting and I was always sort of the big island girl in a class full of, you know, dainty Balangis, basically, yeah, <laughs> and I just felt you know sort of out of place, or mm. but um, yeah, I kind of felt like I wanted to do something a bit more funky mm. or uh, fun, but anyway, mm. how know, long did you actually do that for the ballet? Um, I did it sort of all the way to point shoes, kind of thing, <clears throat> oh wow, you know maybe 14 or 15 mm. before I gave it away. And um, and you never actually said to your mum, I want to do hip-hop. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if she... It wasn't going to go down wasn't well. wasn't going to go, yeah. I think she she sort of had an idea in mind what, what she would preferred me to do. Um, at the same time as enrolling in ballet, they also enrolled me in piano lessons and I started piano from age five and that became a big part of my life and I actually hated um, practice for a long time but I do remember at one point um, you know it was just this thing every morning where mum I mum got me up very early to practice and I think it it was a combination of um, I sort of felt forced to Mm. do it but Mm. then I because I was doing it so much I felt you know, I became quite good at it, and the more, and that gave me a certain confidence. So, um, although I was a, quite a shy child, um, when I was playing the piano and when I was dancing, I was I felt free, or you know, I mm. felt um, like confident. I was, yeah, yeah. That's that's where I wanted to be. That's very cool. And did you end up loving piano? Um, I know that I loved music, um, but I wasn't sure where I could, where else I could express that. I tried a couple of times to learn other instruments, but, um, because I was doing sort of Royal Schools of Music examinations and, you know, it just takes over your life. Mm. And, um, at high school I took music all the way through and, um, I was in the jazz band and the the big band and the 
you know playing piano playing piano and um things like that and uh i just had a very busy life i after school i had and you know um when i look back now i realize that i had a really strong um foundation and and a lot of things my father enrolled me in um, drama classes because he could see that i was a um a bit shy so um and that was great. I loved the drama classes, and there were a lot of they they were with Auckland Youth Theatre. Um, so yeah, just my afternoons, I had to get myself there a lot on my own, and so it was it was something that I just did, um, you know, on my own, and um, I definitely enjoyed aspects of it, but. Um, I still didn't really know how I wanted to play that out after mm. I left school. Yeah. Oh, but um, at college, you know, the, we I had the benefit of some really amazing itinerant teachers that came into our high school. I was at um, Birkenhead College, or it was Birkdale when I when I was there, and we actually had Don McGlashan come in. Um, from from scratch, and mm, wow. that and was a he's a well known yeah, musician. Yes, and yep. you know he he actually bought his he bought from scratch into the school and um had all of us playing those big tubes with the big jandals and and um, he had us doing all sorts of different types of. Um, composition exercises and and yeah I also had lessons with Phil Broadhurst a jazz musician who's passed away now but he he was an incredible man that um, was a great teacher and I, I was also doing photography and art history and I had some very inspiring teachers there mm. um, and so even at high school you were quite sort of multidisciplinary in a way, yeah, the things that you were doing, plus you know what you were doing out of school yeah. as well, which yeah. <laughs> must have informed your practice. Yeah, I think it just gave me a very broad um, understanding mm. of the performing arts, I guess. And um, I did want to do more visual arts and things, but I just didn't have time. No, yeah, yeah, that sounds interesting. And it's it's great, you know, as a teenager that you were getting into it all because, you know, sometimes it doesn't happen at that age. And so when you left school, you headed to university? Yeah, I, I, I actually had a gap year where I continued to take piano lessons and I sat some of my um, final kind of grade eight um, examinations and ended up getting you know, distinction and those things. And um, and so it was all sort of pointing towards me perhaps applying to music school and my parents were really pushing me to, you know, you should, you need to apply to music school. And, and I still, I I sort of wanted to, but I, I didn't really see myself as a classical pianist and but I, I didn't have any other answers. So mm. I auditioned and, at the time, uh, I knew there were about 200 people or whatever, applicants, and 
there was only 35 spots and I just never thought that I'd get in. And all of a sudden I got the letter saying that I was in. Wow. And, and how did you feel? Were you elated or terrified? Oh, a kind of a combination of both. I was a little bit shocked actually. Mm. Um, and I think um, I, you know, I don't think that I was fully prepared for university life mm. and what that might mean. I left home um, and... I wanted to get out on my own and kind of, I felt like I was, um, I actually felt like I was, you know, the the environment at home wasn't the best because my my parents were sort of arguing quite a lot and eventually they broke up after I I left home. But um, yeah, I didn't really have the support of them, you know, um, around me during Mm. kind of difficult moments at university and, um, it was the first year at university was kind of a combination of pure elation just because of some of the teaching. And I my my piano teacher was um Thomas Vesmus, who was an incredible pianist in his own right and came from a an, an amazing long line of um piano players that ended up going back to composers in Vienna. Wow. You know, that I grew up loving I mean mm. I was in love with Mozart and Bach and oh my goodness Rachmaninoff and Beethoven yeah. and all these things um but I yeah I just still felt out of place and I ended up I did end up passing that year but I just couldn't see myself carrying on mm. and um mm. at the time I sort of entered into one of my first relationships and it was with a photographer and he was sort of involved in an underground or alternative was the was the catchphrase in those days and um he actually had a band called the X-Men and so I decided oh okay well I'm just gonna leave I'm not gonna go back next year and he said oh well okay and uh, you know if that's what you want and uh my much to my parents horror I can and, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> well, the style of music too. Mm. I think I just wanted to rebel against mm. classical. Yeah. And so this, their style of music was totally, you know, it was completely discordant and it was all about people just giving things a go and even if they couldn't really play, the, you know, it was that Dunedin thing, mm. of even if they couldn't really play the <laughs> the um, the instruments properly or whatever or they were self-taught or whatever, they were just up there and they were yeah. just doing it. And that really appealed to me. And um, somehow I ended up becoming like the, uh, taking the X-Men on a t- big tour of New Zealand and organising, you know, being their tour manager yeah, and wow. doing that for the first time. And Amazing. I was sort of didn't really know what I was doing, but um, we managed to get through that. And mm. then I think through that early, that period straight after university, I was just trying to find something that I could um, hang on to, but I was feeling in myself that, <clears throat> excuse me, that I I was feeling really sensitive about practicing art in any shape or form. So I kind of deliberately went away from it, mm-hmm. and I decided that I was going to do more production, and um, 
I worked with another photographer who was a childhood friend and we she had a suffragette project on and um, you know I was her photographic assistant so I sort of tried out that for a while with her and then <clears throat> I um, yeah I, I became a stage manager for Morad Brownlee um, who was doing amazing stage shows um, and I worked on the key and you know that was such a crazy show because mm. I had to sort of wrangle um, ducklings and <laughs> keep them at home of all things. <laughs> wow! And um, you know it was all there was. It was a dance theatre piece. Mm. Her work mm. with film. And how and did it, you get onto her? How did you oh, make contact with her? I, it was just through going out in the weekends and being in the scene and mm. kind of meeting people and. Um, she said that she was doing work and I can't even remember how we met really, but um, she said she was putting on this show and would I like to be involved? And she had another person that was um, a more experienced stage manager than I was and that lady very generously um, sort of mentored me into that role and helped mm. me understand the mechanics of, mm. of that. Isn't and, that amazing? Yeah, it was. Yeah. I was I was very fortunate that, mm. um, you know, there was a really supportive group of people that I was starting to discover. Yeah. And do you feel that that was a better place for you to be learning sort of on the job with, with Definitely. people? Yeah. I mean, even um, I went on to a few film sets as a, as a runner and um, I, I was just trying to – I was just searching – for things that I found interesting and mm. I wanted to understand the process. And I realised as soon as I um, became a runner on a film set that that was the complete wrong end of the – that wasn't the interesting bit. The interesting bit was actually on set yeah, yeah. and behind the camera yeah. and the DOP mm. and what they saw. And that was one of the things that I loved about my, my partner at the time, that I, I was actually soaking up what he was – doing through his photography work and he I think yeah he actually did screen printing as well because mm. he went to art school and um, it was like a whole other world mm. open to me yeah. that um, people were practicing art around me but I was I was very much um, lacking in confidence to kind of start doing something of my own mm. so I I, I began helping other people. Mm, yeah. Which is a good way to start, I guess. And I wonder if that's because you, your parents weren't focusing on the visual arts as much and you weren't sort of being exposed to those kind of experiences, I guess, through school. And, um, but you were doing lots of other things in the arts, but not the visual arts. But did you still have a pull to the visual arts or was it still kind of drama, music? Um. I think it was just everything really, you know. Um, film was really interesting to me and still is, but, mm. you know, I haven't explored that as as much as I've wanted to um, just because of life really. Um, so, yeah, I think I, I wanted to just leave the performing arts alone for a while, although I did think that I did want to make shows and that was kind of how I met um, one of the Pacific sisters, Rosanna Raymond and actually 
um, at the time that I met her, I'd been talking to a friend and, and he said, look, I know someone that is actually, you know, she does a lot of her own, she produces a lot of her own um, fashion shows and things like that. Um, you know, why don't you go and have a chat to her? She might have something for you. And I, I think, you know, it was kind of, it was meant to be. She'd been on the phone to with the Auckland Council who'd rung her up because she was a former model and and um, she was doing styling and for fashion magazines and things like that. And they'd asked her if she could um, direct a new Pacifica fashion show. Could she take that project on? Mm-hmm. And she was apparently on the couch just off the phone and thinking, oh, well, gosh, I think I need some help with that. And I knocked on the door. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? The stars aligned. The stars aligned. And through that process of meeting her and um, working on the first three Pacific fashion shows with her, um, I met the Pacific Sisters because they were one of the initial designers in the very first show. Mm-hmm. And I realised that they were more than just fashionistas, they were performer, performers as well and had a visual arts component and, and we all kind of had a connection with each other because of our cultural background and and um, I was more interested in that because my artistic experience so far had all been in the Western tradition, in mm. classical music, ballet, yeah. drama, mm. that kind of thing. And I'd never really learnt, you know, I, I hadn't learnt much about my Samoan culture. My mum had done her best trying to get me to learn the language, but I just wasn't in the right headspace, I think. And, um, yeah, it was through this group of women, um, the Pacific Sisters, that we connected and we were all kind of the children of immigrants that, or grandchildren of immigrants that had come from the islands and were mingling and we'd been most of us had been born in Aotearoa and mm. that was our home but mm. we we felt like we were in between two worlds yeah. you know and that's very common mm. um, and is that do you think that informed a lot of the work that you did that sort of unpacking some of those feelings and ideas definitely yeah we we were keen we were really thirsty for knowledge about the culture and a lot of that meant you know, reading, researching in the library, and that was before the internet. So, you know, we'd have to spend the hours in there reading the books, and if we wanted to take away the information, we'd have to photocopy it and mm. all of that the sort of thing. good old days. <laughs> yeah, sharing sharing some um, stories, myths. You know, I'm hesitant to call them myths because it's more like stories that hold cultural knowledge, mm. and that's what we were after. Yeah. Um, because we were we were the generation that was in danger of losing that knowledge altogether because our elders it was suppressed mm. with them. So, or they were told that their language wasn't valued, or mm. you know, to only speak English and yeah. all this sort of thing. So we were in that space where we were like, oh no, 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 we we want to learn about it, and um, that's how we all connected. Mm. Yeah. So you connected with with this collective 
um, around sort of 92, 93 through that opportunity. And then, yeah, obviously lots of amazing things have happened with that collective. But before Mm -hmm. then, you had children, is that right? Um, Or did you have children after that? Yeah, I uh, I had my first child in 97. Right. Um, So it was kind of in the middle. And during between 94 and 96, we'd, in 94, we, the Pacific Sisters had... uh, Mainly been in the fashion world, but there was one member, Annie O'Neill, who was a had been to Elam, and she um, was a you know a sculptor, and and um, through her work with Lisa Dehana, we made a film about our own. Uh, it was our own version of a legend about the coconut tree, which is very common to the Pacific, um, and we made a Mangaian version, and we did it for a fest a sort of multimedia um, 26 screen or whatever it was at the Aotea Centre mm-hmm. um, and we performed in front of it, had live music. Wow. Um, Lisa's video behind us and we used modern materials even though we were practising or utilising um, some of the knowledge ga- gathering was about maintaining or uh, uh, some of the older techniques of weaving, mm-hmm. and we wanted to retain that, but we were using materials that were readily available, and that's what we saw our older uh, members of the community who were still weaving, and they were doing it in New Zealand, but they didn't have any pandanas, so they might use, you know, you see the plastic, mm. um, you know, plastic, the blue bags. plastic bags or the plastic strapping. Yeah. Um, just reinterpreting those things and that you know that's where the innovation Mm. um lay so Mm. that's what we were interested in and how could we make our culture still relevant to us in 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 our everyday life and and carry it with us yeah you know carry it forward with us Mm. yeah and that was your first sort of major um project with the pacific sisters yeah 94 yeah, the interdigitate, and also at the same time, Jim Viviati, who was a New Zealand Pacific uh, Cook Islands um, art curator, he organised the first contemporary Pacific um, exhibition of artists, which happened to be at Auckland Art Gallery, and he invited us to do something for the opening, and that mm. was where I created, I made my first garment um, which happened to be out of metal chain I went round some scrap metal yards that were in Greylin at the time and gathered a few materials wow. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't really know how to put it together so I, uh, yeah my long-suffering partner <laughs> a new one now um, he sort of looked at me like you mean you don't know how to link these together? Let me show you. And yeah. So, you know, I, I sort of, I was um, trying to learn these skills mm. and, and bring it all together, but I ended up making a, a sort of a chain hula skirt and neck piece and head piece to go with it. And it was really funny at the opening because I didn't realise 
how much noise it would make mm. every time I moved. I bet. And so you actually wore it as well. I did. Yeah. I mean, so I you were performing it. in performing that. Performing in it, yeah. And, and that felt made, like yeah. I, a new way of that I could um, mm. express myself yeah. and yeah, within you know this group of people. That, yeah. Um, and did you see the making of a costume as your art practice at that time? Um, no, it felt really awkward and odd and it was really stressful trying to get it together, but I managed to do it and I was very proud of it at the time. Um, but I, I, you know, I was in and amongst, um, some really amazing artists from Pacific Sisters like Suzanne Tamaki and Nephi Tupaya and Selena Hami and they were the founders of Pacific Sisters and, and they were they were in wardrobe already and, you know, Rosanna was doing styling and just starting to make her own work as well and, and um, you know, we were kind of all learning together. I mm. remember at one point we, we went to a, a weaving workshop together that was up at Art Station, I think, years mm. ago and we just learned how to make a kitty. You know, mm. so we were trying to gather our resources around us, and that's what really inspired us. We yeah. were um, talking over the stories and and um, yeah, talking about work that we wanted to sort of try and create, mm. and then opportunities started coming along yeah. where we could try and try those ideas out. Mm. And it seems like you know all the way through your career, really, you've you've tried lots of different things, and you've quite enjoyed that experimental process, or you know having to learn or research to discover a new medium or technique that kind of goes with the projects. Yeah, I think that's how I'm uh, learning that that's part of my methodology is thinking of the idea and being led by that and trying to um yeah bring the skills that I need to make that happen and sometimes it's about collaboration as well mm. bringing people in that that can um help with that process and now I understand just from observing more artists around me now as as a more experienced um practitioner that that's a normal process, whereas, you know, I always, I always felt like I needed to do everything myself. Mm, yeah. Um, but I've, you know, I've always sort of, it's almost a perfectionist kind of streak where you don't want to ask for help mm. and, you, and you're just determined to yeah, do it. Yeah, and you're trying to prove yourself. Yeah. and yeah. Um, When you're I, younger especially. Hey? Exactly. So I understand now where that's coming from mm. and now I understand that it's actually it's okay to say, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't understand that. Yeah, absolutely. I really need help with that mm. um, because that actually gets you to the place that you want to be at faster. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I think a big part of it in my early days was the reason that I kind of almost ran away from, you know, being a creative is that I was afraid of failure. Mm. And um, that, and throughout, you know, as I've gotten older, I've managed to bring in the tools to help unpack that for myself and realize that, yeah, you can still feel that. It's like the classic, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but growing up, um, I think um, 
yeah, there was a lot of pressure on me to do well, and I put that pressure on myself as well. Yeah, and um, it just mm. kind of imploded when I went to university. Yeah, yeah which and, is often the way, isn't it, with some yeah. kids? And sometimes I think that extra sort of expectation, high expectation from parents can be good in the end. Mm. I feel that with my own father. Yeah. You know, I never felt like I really quite made it in his eyes when I was young. Mm. But then it kind of gave me, me my own determination to do really well. Mm. And whether that's trying to please dad, you know, in some way, way yeah. who knows. But yeah. I think once you sort of get your head around that and you become more confident in your own skin and mm. you're living a life and you get a bit older and you have experiences, then sometimes, not always, that can be a positive thing. Do you feel that with yourself? Yeah. Um, I think it helps now that people talk more about uh, mental health and and um, I think for a long time I didn't realise that I had a, an anxiety, um, a problem with anxiety and that's, that's why I would not complete or go through the process or not want to face the process of making something because... It would overwhelm me. And now it's far easier to sort of that information, I think it's out there more, especially mm. in social media and mm. uh, just generally. And, you know, I really hope, would hope, I always felt, uh, you know, I went I went back to university um, actually while I had, while my kids were quite young. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which was oh, wow. quite full on. But I yeah. really felt like I needed to do something for myself that was about confidence building again. Mm. And I went back and I just went back part-time and it was it was quite hard juggling. But, you know, fortunately my, my um, partner was running his own business and that's one of the only ways that I was actually able to do what mm. I could do and go and mm. study because I could say to him, flexible. Yeah, yeah, I could say, oh, look, can you look after the kids for a couple of hours? Mm. I've just got this lecture to do. And and how old were the children then? Oh, they were all under 10, you know. Yeah. It was it was a little bit crazy. And I think I did one year where it was full time. And I mm. remember, um, yeah, Neville would come out to Muriwai, um with the kids and I had all these assessments due and I think it was like six weekends in a row and I had to ask him if he could exclusively look after the kids while I did all my assignments and oh, wow! And after that I just thought no it's just too much you know to be full time and try and be a mum and I need to be realistic um, and I actually remember in and amongst I think I'd Oh, a few years earlier, actually, you know, I was just constantly wanting to. It's like uh, I'm constantly trying to keep my hand in in some kind of creative thing, and I even auditioned for um, a dance troupe called Toro Toro, which um, I did make it in, but oh, wow. I actually got pregnant with my third child, and oh, <laughs> um, our I think it was our um, first performance together you know and we'd spent months kind of rehearsing and blah, da, da. Mm. and it was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back I kind of I tried to keep my um 
life as a mother kind of separate or deny, almost deny. It wasn't them, but it was me mm -hmm. feeling like I couldn't express that. Um, yeah, well, I just had this family life and I was trying to be a dancer and and uh, uh, and then I had to say that I was wow. pregnant. So it oh was, gosh. it was, that was you pretty know, full on. And that was after the degree, the dance, or before. Um, that was. I think it was before, mm. yeah. And what was the actual degree? What What were you studying? Um, I went back and studied um, a degree in Pacific Performing Arts at Auckland University. And the funny thing is, is that while I was studying it, um, enrolments were going down for the degree and they were actually closing papers all around me. Oh, <laughs> so wow. I was trying to finish this degree. I was determined to finish it. And it led me to having to go to other parts of the university that I may not have been to. But that was actually okay as well because I ended up going into the Māori Studies Department and I met Maureen Landers um, who had taught some one or two of the uh, members of Pacific Sisters anyway, mm. um, some weaving skills, and she was running some material culture, Maori material culture papers. And I just, that's where I actually made my very first, um, yeah, I, I researched the, the, the rāpaki, which is like an earlier form of pūpū, um, sort of leads into that and I was looking at the intersection of um, what garments might look like when they first, when the first um, Pacific or people came out of the Pacific and were first arriving in New Zealand mm. and and I wanted to create something that reflected that and rāpaki was an older form and you could wear it around your top and also around your waist. Mm. And I ended up actually making it, even though we were learning with flax, harakeke, I made it out of raffia, but I applied the techniques of metal, which is rolling two strands together. Wow. I did that with raffia, and then I made tags out of flax, and, and I wove wool into it because wool was um, actually a material that, early Māori mm. um, utilised mm. when blankets started arriving yeah. um, from the, from the uh, settlers. Mm. And, um, oh, that sounds amazing. And I ended up, yeah, making quite a different piece. Mm. And uh, that, yeah, so it led me in new directions yeah, and I realised that I wanted to do more of that. Mm. That really sort of sparked my interest mm. and it seems like you keep coming back to the costume yeah yeah um i i always felt like i wanted to do more of that like in the pacific sisters there's sort of an unspoken thing where um there's a particular garment that gets made and it's a waistcoat and it's derived from the crossing of shells and beads in the Pacific and it's our own form of it and it, it kind of connects us back to our ancestors through 
through it and it's just an identifier of the group and it and there's a kind of unspoken thing that you're not really a Pacific sister until you actually make one. Mm-hmm. And I'd never actually made in all that time that, oh, wow. you know, we'd been to Samoa and been to an arts festival and Sydney and um, done all these projects together, but I'd never managed to make one. Mm. And, um, yeah, I think after having the third child and going through university and... and um, We actually, you know, there was periods of time in Pacific Sisters where even though the collective's been together for almost 30 years, um, we didn't always make work together, uh, you know, every single year. So Mm. there were gaps and I, you know, I had different things going on in life. So um, I came back into, you know, we had a busy period in the 90s and the early 2000s and then I we sort of came back together for a reunion show in 2011 mm-hmm. and um, just due to um, I kind of overworked myself on that project and I and I had a bit of burnout mm. um, and I felt really kind of lost again about what I should be doing mm-hmm. where you were heading with your was, with your creativity with my creativity yeah um so I went, I I kind of left it for a while and I decided that I didn't want to do anything for a while and um, I threw myself into, you know, being the, the mum that picks up their kids and takes them to blooming, um, you know, uh, training and all that and they were training twice a day on the lake and on the beach and mm. all that sort of thing. Mm. So I just fully involved myself in that and we went on a, um, Samoan bilingual journey together and I was sort of spearheading a project at a particular primary school um, or um, working with some other parents to get a, a bilingual unit up and running at Kofi Intermediate which is still running today mm, um, wow. sort of 10 years later but That's amazing and so your children are bilingual um, not fully bilingual but they definitely have that perspective of you know where who they are in their entirety, mm. you know, and that's Isn't that great. Yeah, and that's a gift that you've given them. Yeah, you know, it was quite a hard road um, because my mum it was fortunate that my mum was living with us actually, and she was the native speaker, so uh, she supported that a lot. And um, just through being there, and and. Um, I'm very, very grateful that my kids got to experience that because they can understand the different worlds that they're part of and mm. it comes out when it needs to, Yeah, you know. And, um, you know, they're still interested in learning more about about those that side of themselves, um, the Samoan side, and I guess there was more emphasis on it I wanted to place more emphasis on it because there was so much English everywhere and you mm. could do that, you know, at any time and and it was everywhere but to uncover and protect the Samoan if I didn't um, do something about that, then I knew that the connection might be lost with mm. the homeland, my mum's homeland. And I always kind of said that I wanted to beat a pathway back to my grandmother's village 
and that was sort of my way of doing it. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's many of us, I'm not fluent either. So um, I think we went on that journey together. Mm, which yeah. is nice. Mm. And that you are really sort of honouring your ancestry, passing it on to the next generation. And, I mean, I guess, do you feel like when you were a child that wasn't something that happened as much or was it still in your life? Uh, I I. I grew up with the sounds around me. You know, yeah. my mum was always on the phone or my family were around and they'd be talking in Samoan, but I couldn't understand. So mm. it was that classic thing of understanding more than you can speak. Or mm. And then there was a couple of experiences, you know, in Samoa as a youth when you know, I went back to Samoa and just tried to speak Samoan and, you know, I was just sort of the laughing stock. Yeah, and, which is really sad, isn't it? It's well, not helpful. They didn't know at the time, but, you know, it's just one of those things. It really you, knocks your confidence, it, doesn't it? It does a little bit. And yeah. then, you know, they used to ask me, oh, are you Samoan, you know, because you're so white. Mm. And so all these sort of questions, I think that that was why some of the reason as well why we came into Pacific Sisters, because those that group of people were also trying to answer some of those questions in their own life that was some of the common mm. um experiences that we shared yeah yeah which would have been great and you know obviously ended up helping you with your creativity and your identity through that yeah and i think um i was doing some volunteer work with the new zealand fashion museum mm. and i got asked to be part of an exhibition um, that she was doing. And so I thought, this was in 2016, and I thought, well, I think it's my time to make one of those waistcoats. I, that's what I, I just felt like I had this calling. Mm. I really wanted to do you that. You were ready. I was ready. And um, I took it back to my mother's village, the inspiration, because um, for the project we had to choose a phrase that was based on a body of work by June Black, and she had all these phrases about the way in which costume is used in, in people's lives, and the theme that I chose was a theme called the... Um, or a phrase called a costume to offset the acid thought of doubt. And that just really appealed to me because mm. I felt like that theme had kind of mm. um, pervaded in, in my own experience yeah. of the arts. And, and did you come up with that idea or did somebody give that to you? Yeah, we had to choose from a list yeah. of, of phrases mm. and that was one of them. So it's perfect. Uh, I thought, okay, I'll base it around that. And I know... I sort of looked at the inspiration or where I could start, what was a starting point, and I thought in my grandmother's village there's a famous saying called le aisefefe, which means have no fear. And I thought that doubt was actually a form of fear. And so I, that's how I layered it. Mm. And the waistcoat idea was from the Pacific Sisters and I made that it's a form of protection yeah. um, and so I created this character that was like a pole that was dancing for um, kind of 
it was a it was a homage to my Pacific sisters because I thought, look, I was am so inspired by you all, and this was my offering to them mm. to finally make my own milk waistcoat. Mm, that's beautiful, but also an offering to yourself, I'd say. Yeah, you know, it was probably a big moment in your creative life. It kind of was. I remember actually. Um, <laughs> Oh, my children's sports coach is actually an incredible man, and he, um, yeah, he. I remember having some conversations with him about. He was like, "Oh, what are you doing?" And I, well, I was, you know, I it was like I was trying to leap off the cliff of stopping those thoughts of doubt, and and it was a, a it was literally happening to me as I was creating it. Mm. So, um, in the piece, I I had a mask as well that I created because I felt like part of being doubtful is things come out of your mouth that undermine your confidence mm. because you know you have a runaway mouth or you say things that aren't, don't necessarily reflect what you actually think but your mind is running over time yeah and so I, the mask was my sort of um me trying to stop mm. those things coming out mm. literally yeah and yeah. Um, so it was quite a cathartic experience. It was a cathartic thing. Yeah. And I ended up writing a poem to accompany it as well. Mm. So you acted in that, you presented that, you danced in the costume. I actually didn't. Um, that costume, even though it's become part of Te Papa's permanent collection, it actually hasn't been worn on an um anyone apart from for a photo shoot for the New Zealand Fashion Museum. Right. So that would be one thing that I'd want to do yeah. perhaps with them in the future. Well, it's such a personal thing, isn't it? It's very defining, I'd say. A defining moment creating that work. You must have a real connection to it. Yeah, I, it was one of my – it was actually the first piece that had ever been bought by an institution as well. Mm, yeah, and so, Papa, it's New Zealand's National Museum. Yeah, I was very cool. know, um, very fortunate. I mean, it, even though I created it for the New Zealand Fashion Museum, um, it ended up being part of a retrospective mm-hmm. for Pacific Sisters, which came a bit later right. in 2018. So uh, just back to the Pacific Sisters, this um, amazing art collective that you've been part of for nearly 30 years. Um, it'd be really interesting for us to hear about a particular project you've worked on with them and, um, you know, maybe right through from how the project came about, your process as a group, how you were involved, and then through to what was actually created and how it was presented, if you can uh, manage all that. <laughs> sure, no problem. Um, well, I'll bring out, um, we actually, what what we have showing currently, which is um, we have three new A2 or avatar that we've created as, and it, and um, it's showing up at Auckland Museum. Mm-hmm. And they commissioned us um, actually after our retrospective, which, um, you know, started off into Papa and we it travelled up to Auckland Art Gallery. Um, and, yeah, anyway, we'd never... We'd, we'd sort of had been in conversation with Auckland Museum and they'd wanted 
some of our work and we're trying to get some of our older works. But in the end, we said, look, why don't we make something new for you? And um, and the conversation was started there. And they said to us that they were actually, the sort of the timing was right, they were actually redeveloping the lower galleries um, of the museum mm-hmm. and they were creating a new exhibition space called The Stories of Auckland, um, Tamaki Paingahira, and they thought, well, would you like to do something for that? And they had an activist room um, and they were putting stories about sites of activism in Auckland mm-hmm. and they recognised that Pacific Sisters was one of those groups or people um, that were you know, could be included. And mm. I mean, we were Did very... Did you see yourself as activists at that time? Um, I think by the time we were having these final conversations with them, that term fashion activists kind of came out through the retrospective. Nina Tonga sort of mooted it to mm. us. She was the curator. And we, although, you know, we when we started off, we were just sort of doing our own thing. But I think... By the time that that happened, um, that was just, yeah, yes, we've always been active in trying to uphold the values and the um, for women, for um, our Pacific, our our Maori and Pacific cultures, um, our indigenous so- sovereignty, mm. and I guess you know, yes, we. You know, we didn't come up with that term necessarily, mm. but that that sort of fitted. It fitted. So yeah. yeah. So and you're also very inclusive, aren't you, in, in the way you work with different groups? Yeah, we've or we've always, um, you know, we've always been supported by a lot of um, men. So even though the title of the group is Pacific Sisters, that we've always had people being very fortunate to be working with um, videographers and photographers and people who know lighting and uh, technical things, mm. uh, technical side of things to help enable us to to present the multimedia kind of vision that, mm. that, that the shows have been. Yeah. Um, it's very collaborative, isn't it? Collaborative and also, um, yeah, inclusive in terms of it, it's not so radical now. But in the early days, you know, we were wanting to showcase what was part of our community and that included all um, gender identities and we welcomed that Mm. and um, we acknowledged that and also it played out into the way that we um, included models who were seen as plus size but we never called them that Mm. you know we wanted them for the people that they were and what they brought to the catwalk and Mm. we weren't interested in sort of um serious no expression Mm. modeling we wanted them to embody the garment that they were wearing and quite often um you know we call it kaupapa driven frock because it's coming from a it's telling a story or it's reflecting nature mm. or it's it's created for a purpose and 
that's really what we wanted to bring to the fore. Mm. And part of that is utilising people that can bring that out of the garment and they can bring up a, their way to a, their spirit to what they're doing and how they're mm. going down the catwalk. Mm. You know? And how was that received when you did that kind of thing? It would have been quite quite radical, I guess, in those days. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there were people earlier, people like um, Paddy Eliatino Walker, who was a pioneer in the 70s and 80s, I think, in, in the Pacific Island scene, who was would sort of shoo-hoo and things like that mm-hmm. on the catwalk and in mm. her own shows and things like that. But um, we were just reflecting an urban culture as well, mm. uh, mixing up um, island tunes with hip-hop and, mm. um, you know, using juxtapositioning different materials, looking at designers who who were doing urban wear or street wear and then also working with designers that were we were trying to create a platform for mm. for um, these designers and people to come together and, and show things all at once. Mm. So, um, you know, we weren't working alone. No, and it sounds... Um it sounds it does sound quite sort of forward thinking i would i would say and um just going back to that project for the museum so how how do you actually work what's your process or how did you figure out you know what you were making um how did you figure out what the initial idea was and how were you involved as an artist um well we because we were in the activist room we decided that there were to focus on three different themes that were most important to the group that we'd always worked with. And they were actually based on the songs of um, Henry Afu Taripo, who's a Cook Islands musician. And um, one of the themes, we chose three themes. One of them was indigenous sovereignty. One of them was um, gender identities. And the last one was environmentalism. And these are the three things that we felt most reflected um, what we... (laughs) Is the dog (laughs) yawning? Sorry. She normally makes an appearance at some point in the podcast. Sorry. So just going back to um, how you choose the themes and and that kind of thing, where where did you go from there? Well, that was a a collaborative process. So um, just organising us all into the same... Um, city or moment in time to do that is sometimes quite challenging but we managed to you know um, talk together about what what we felt was most important to us and then you know because this room that we were going to be in um, we were going to be in and amongst some of our heroes Mm. you know um, and like the Polynesian Panthers and um, you know um, just people that we'd actually looked up to yeah. and and uh, so we really wanted to um, just bring our our strongest um, thoughts to the process and then once we'd decided on those three themes then we thought okay we'll, we'll create three new because we had the songs there and that was our inspiration. And we decided that we'd work in teams of three because we actually are in different cities. Half the group's 
in sort of Wellington mm. or Napier and, you know, um, even in Australia at the time kind of thing, um, and Auckland, so and the Cook Islands. So we we decided it'd be easier if we worked in teams on these individual things and, mm. and we just chose who was going to be on that and then um, that I was working with Annie O'Neill on mine and our we we were working on the environmentalism um, theme and mm. out of that was um, Mururoa was based on right. the looking at the anti-nuclear yeah. stance on you know the nuclear testing mm. around Mururoa in the Pacific and yeah, basically, um, we sat down together and just tried to think of some key words and um, based on the song, which was about being tearful and angry and so many angry people in the Pacific, so many p- angry people all around the world that don't like this and how are we going to express this? And we decided that this Aitu or Avatar was going to be um, kind of like a guardian of the environment but also reflect, have some sort of reflection of ourselves as what what did we ourselves, how were we involved mm. in that because mm. you can't escape that, you know, maybe – it's because you didn't do anything that these things still exist. Yeah. So questioning that kind of process. Mm. And then um, we decided that we'd make, after we designed it, we kind of decided that we'd focus on different parts ourselves. And I think some of that was to do with, based on materials that we may have already had. Um, and uh, I, I knew I had a welding mask that I... Uh, I'd picked up at Avondale Markets Mm -hmm. and I didn't really know why I wanted it at the time, but I just thought it was cool and, and I just sort of had it sitting around, lying around and I, I thought, well, I'll try and create something about that. And because it was about nuclear testing, I decided that I'd try and incorporate the nuclear symbol onto that mask. And then I looked at the colors around safety because this was, this character was like a safety officer. So mm. what are the colours involved in that? And if you look at safety, it's all about hivers yeah. and Plural. orange and yeah. grey and silver and, mm. you know, those types mm. of things. So that sort of got me thinking about um, those colours. And uh, it was the same for Ani as well in what she was creating. And we also used material that was left over had actually almost been chucked out by a particular institution, which we won't say who it was, but Mm -hmm. um, it was refound in a dumpster and it got rescued and given to us to say, hey, uh, this material is actually um, something that Lisa Rehana printed up. Mm -hmm. And so Ani carefully cut it up into um, a muddle, which is an apron shape. Mm. And then... Um, yeah, I, cut, I made a necklace for it, and so it was, you know, and uh, I made an, an a teapotter, which is a Cook Islands form of, uh, it's like a, a covering for the top, mm. for the body, top of the body, 
and I looked at I try was trying to look at the symbology I made and you know I made that out of um, reflective material and we had we you know when during the research process we researched nuclear testing and I was kind of inspired by uh, just some of the visions of poor people that were actually witnessing those explosions and some of the imagery that they mm. told were talking about and one of the one one of the things that stood out to me was um when those people held their hands up to the explosion to shelter their eyes from the light the blinding light they could actually see through their hands and see their bones oh wow and there was actually a a bone waistcoat that was around at the time that's that's on the garment, that's on the Aitu, and that's actually Suzanne Tamaki's. And oh. it's one of the oldest Pacific Sisters mm. pieces. That's great, isn't it, to use something from the past? Yeah. And we thought, well, that just Perfect. fits. Yeah. And, um, you know, so that's how Suzanne was involved in that. And mm. um, the other image that really struck me was them talking about when the underground explosions were happening and when they went off under the reef, the fish would come up out of the water yeah. and then you'd get raining fish. And so the Aitu Mururua is holding a blackened fish mm. in relationship to that. And oh, wow. it's attached to an umbilical cord which is woven out of fowl, we call it in Samoa, but it's... Um, uh, a, a tree fibre mm-hmm. and so we were trying to use some of the traditional materials and some industrial materials mm. and the mask ended up I ended up doing some electroplating on the mask um, so that I could make it completely reflective and then when you walk past um, the the people you can see yourself in mm. the mask and mm. so that was the kind of questioning our own role in these environmental disasters. Wow, that sounds amazing. And it was such a massive event for New Zealand and the Pacific. Yeah, well, it was crazy to us that, you know, they only stopped nuclear testing in 1996. Mm, It's mad. Yeah. So um, just to wrap up about that project, the the other two Aitu, even though we designed it as a trio um, just due to space constrictions, the the um, Auckland Museum couldn't show it all together. So what they're doing is over the next 10 years, they're swapping those A2 out. So Mururua is currently on show mm. in the Stories of Auckland Galleries. And wow. then it's going to be Super Sunga, which is all about um, self-empowerment and being the best person that you can be and some of the values um, that we want to pass down to the uh, our next generation Mm. and um yeah that's a fun um character and then the last one is tohu tūpuna which is to do with gender identities and that will i think that will be the last one to come in Mm. i wonder if they'll ever be put together at some point i hope so well we're actually doing a we're almost finished doing a um a film a short film or almost like a music video mm. about the three of them and that'll go up online oh wow um on auckland museum's website yeah that'd um, be great to see yeah mm. just explaining the mm. relationship between them mm. and if you know people are interested they can 
go there now and they can see every piece on every garment um, has we've all written about what it means mm. and why it was made and where it came from. And that's all on the website? Yeah, that's the all there. It's in the collections online. Oh, There's right. a link there yeah. that you can go to. So. And we'll, uh, we'll put that on your blog as well, cool. that link. Okay. Yeah. But <laughs> that's, uh, it's nice to have that background information, isn't it? It just means so much more once you understand the connections. Yeah, it sounds beautiful. And, uh, yeah. Thank and you, you didn't do any performance as part of that. That was the some more static sculpture. Um, we did... Not so much performance, but we created a ceremony to hand it over because mm-hmm. that's part of our process. Yeah. So when it was time, when it was due in 2018, we actually um, handed it over to the museum. We actually dressed those three A2 on bodies, on people, mm. and we processed into the museum. Wow. Um, and it was just for us and the small amount of staff. Um, and... We wrapped them in mats and we walked through the museum and, and uh, into a room and then we we did a, I guess, um, you know, a, a dance or a, a sequence that uncovered those garments and then we removed ceremoniously each part of each Aitu and put mm-hmm. it on the ground Oh, wow. on mats for Beautiful. those um, ready to be packed away yeah, and given to the museum. And that's, right. we asked them if we could do that mm. and they've been very accommodating. And one of the things that we've actually done because of the separation, we've given, um, e- each of us have found a Modi stone for that represents each um, Aitu and it's actually... We placed it, once it got placed in the actual exhibition, we had another day where we came along and we sang while Mururoa was being placed behind the glass case, mm, you know, which beautiful. makes us feel a bit sad. But yeah. what we wanted to do was it have the, the other, all the stones together that represented all three of them mm. that will remain throughout the 10 years inside that case. So mm. no matter which one is on display, They'll be together yeah. in spirit, yeah, and um, that's important to you, isn't it? That kaitiaki tanga, that guardianship of the work, that's very important yeah. to us and part of our process. And it's something that we see is not just ours; it, it, it would be beyond us. You know, when we're no longer there, mm. we still will be wanting representatives that we um, ask to. To be there in mm. any special occasion or thing to do with um, those works because that's how we view it. It's mm. not just handing that over. Mm. It's it's a relationship that yeah. we've created and we're trying to, you know, say to the museum, this is how we view it. Can mm. you understand this, please? Mm. And, you know, they, they have been um, as much as they can with all their – yeah. You know, it's quite institutional it is, restrictions. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things is that we weren't allowed to wear the garments um, in our own music video, even though we we made it. Mm. So we just had to suck that up. Mm. Um, but it's a shame. Yeah, what we've you know we've tried to get around that. It's a conversation. It's a negotiation, mm. and it's about making sure that 
your the voice you know your perspective is understood and it does take a while with those institutions for them to understand um the significance mm. you know that we don't see it as a costume it's yeah. not a costume it's not just an object no yeah. it's but you're living... educating them aren't you and and hopefully that will inform their practice going forward yeah that's the that's yeah. the hope yeah so um, unfortunately, Fee, we're going to have to start thinking about wrapping up, but I'd really like to know how um, how it is for you now that you have your children sort of more independent and they're, they're older, how, um, how has that affected the way you view your art practice and the work that you're doing and also the work that you plan to do in the future? Yeah, well, number one, it's given me more time to... Um say that I can dedicate to art and uh, now I'm in a headspace where I just want to perhaps put some of those um, you know demons as a younger person to one side and and just it might be there but I'm not listening to it mm. as much hallelujah you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it means that I'm 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 definitely on a process of discovery I've I'm wanting to learn as much as I can about other mediums and um, uh, crazily enough, I've I've always wanted to give pottery a go because I'm interested in mark making and um, just to do the research that I'm doing at the moment for a future project is about death and mourning and um, I got through that, I got interested in clay and how it's applied to the body and that's actually common to um you know a few cultures in the pacific mm. and they do that when they're in mourning um and also not just when they're in mourning or they put it on objects you know that signify have meaning to them mm -hmm. so i wanted to understand more about the medium and bizarrely um a um, a pottery internship came up um, just randomly and I sort of applied for it and got it. So I'm wow. currently just doing three months of um, kind of, you know, part-time in the studio mm. with um, a really lovely potter, um, Kirsten Dryberg. And, um, That's amazing. Yeah, you know, it's an exchange. Mm. So I work for her, uh, volunteer for her, and then she gives me and another intern a day a week to just learn whatever we want to learn. Oh, that's brilliant. And it's what a just, great thing. It's so cool. Yeah. You know, it's just really, it's a lovely way a of doing it. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I want to do more in the fibre arts as well. I want to go back to weaving and learn more techniques and I want to look at um, printing on material, textiles, mm -hmm. you know, I'm still very interested in that. So, and I love image um, photography, moving image that, you know, with COVID and everything and having to be digitally mm. um, more present. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's, it's a good thing, although I am, um, for me, I can see developing my poetry and writing skills, I think fiction writing is interesting to me. Great. I've given, um, you know, I've written encyclopedia articles and a few sort of other things like that. And 
it's hard um but i just think fictional writing is it, it has a bit of magic for me mm. yeah wow so it's a combination of things I'd like to see if I can develop something so that I can easily do it from living in Muriwai which Mm. we're not living here um, full time at the moment so we hope that's going to change in the next little while yeah that would be great yeah so it's about that kind of practical reality of okay so what what would I need to Mm. make things happen out here yeah yeah Oh, that sounds so exciting! And you, obviously, you have your your individual uh, practice, but you'll continue to work as part of Pacific Sisters over the next years. Yeah, many years to come. Hopefully. Yeah, it's it's a lifetime commitment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, we we've been inspired since the retrospective to just keep working, make make new work together, and we're working at the moment. Um, on something for the Hawaii Triennale and mm-hmm. we've just put in funding for that so fingers crossed for us yeah. and then we've also got some interest from um, a f- art and feminism exhibition in Germany who you know might might like to see parts of that work mm. or something new that we make so right. yeah it's, wow. it's a new exciting. chapter yeah it absolutely feels like a new chapter you know and I feel it's just it's been a real privilege hearing your story and your journey, your personal journey, and you know the way that you've sort of popped out and now see yourself as an artist and as a creator, and you have time and headspace and confidence to explore that further. And you know you're such a multi-talented person. It's going to be very exciting to see where you take us. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate your time and um, Fafita Moliava Noah, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Fee.